You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopi. Hey, Rob, how you doing? Greg, I'm doing well. How, how about yourself? Doing well. Uh, right in the you know beginning of summer here. You know, looking forward to Coalition, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, let's catch up on news. Uh, kind of a quiet time right now in, in the 340B world. Yeah, it doesn't seem like we've had massive updates. I, I think, you know, from a legislative standpoint, we're still waiting to hear um, what the House does with those two bills we discussed, um, the Bouchon bill, which is the transparency bill, and the Kathy McMorris-Rogers bill, which um, definitely has more reimbursement, PBM language, but has that um, MCO Medicaid component. So, uh, I, you know, we're really waiting to see if some of that gets modified. If that makes it out of the House, then what happens in the Senate? So right now we're, we're in a holding pattern there. Um, but interestingly enough, I think uh, what we are seeing on a legislative front is uh, the Senate starting to inquire. About 340B, I think there's a group of six senators that are asking for input around 340B and some of these things. I think they're gearing up for these bills coming across from the House, um, where we typically historically have seen the House Energy and Commerce Committee be more involved. Uh, Interesting, we have six senators already asking questions ahead, I think planning on these bills. So I guess um, one thought is definitely if if they're asking for input, especially if you reside in some of these senators' um, uh, geographical locations for their uh, constituents, uh, providing input back would be really key at this time. So we're getting ahead of um, any, any potential um, questions or comments or uh, edits we would like to see in those bills as they go to the Senate. So just one plug there if uh, if you, you happen to be in one of those states. Great. And then um, contract pharmacy restrictions. So we've gotten another manufacturer that's tightened up uh, some of the limitations, Beringer Ingelheim or BI. Um, they've expanded their uh, limitations. Uh, now uh, it looks like they're, they're doing away with the wholly owned exemption. Uh, the grantee exemption is also eliminated. So all covered entities are now subject to their restrictions, which are a single designated contract pharmacy if you don't have in-house pharmacy. So similar to what we've seen with a lot of the other manufacturers that have changed policy in the last few months. Yeah. Um, so just another one, fortunately. Oh, and um, I think you mentioned it, but yeah, the fact they're hitting grantees is kind of the big deal um, as well. That's a, that's a little different where, the, where they were allowing for a full data sent previously. Yeah. So no data upload requirements. So they're not requiring you to upload claims data for your single designated contract pharmacy. They're also giving covered entities that um, an option, I guess, to add a contract pharmacy or a specialty pharmacy for OFAB. So if you don't have an in-house pharmacy that's within their limited distribution network for uh, OFAB, you can designate a separate contract pharmacy for that particular product. Both pharmacies that you designate have to be within the 40 mile radius of the parent site. They cannot be a central fill pharmacy. Um, I think that's it, right? That sounds about right. Yeah, just restricting it down in-house, single contract pharmacy within 40 miles, includes uh, community health centers, and of course the one specialty for their one product, um, so yeah. That's the update for manufacturers. So we'll say relatively quiet for that two-week span. Um, it's not the end of our week. And so if anything else does come up, uh, more than likely we'll be adding another little clip by the end of this week. Um, 
before we this this podcast drops. So we always have that um, caveat since sometimes we record earlier in the week and uh, by Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, things change. Uh, always a changing landscape in 340B. Exciting and scary all at the same time. Yeah. And if you're listening to this when the episode release releases, it's just before the 4th of July holiday, which means we'll be at Coalition next week. So 340B Summer Coalition in Washington, D.C., We've got a booth, booth 809. So as you're walking, so anyone attending the Summer Coalition in DC, it's as you walk into the to the uh, exhibitors um, section, if you walk in, get past that first row and make a right turn, at the very end of that right turn, there'll be some tables. Our booth's right there on the side. We actually, we like to pick areas where there's some extra seating. Uh, traditionally, we, we kind of spill out over our booth area. So having a little extra tables and spots will be nice. And also there's a refreshment stand kind of right in front of us. So. Definitely come stop by, head right, and um, uh, stop by the booth. And we do have one, I guess, uh, Easter egg. I don't know what else to call that. Uh, yeah. We, um, Our marketing team, in fact, Aiden. By the way, Aiden's always on this call. She just doesn't talk. She's kind of behind the scenes. She does all of our formatting. She's, she's, our, she, she's, she's the woman behind the scenes making it all happen. And uh, Aiden, I don't know if you want to um, hop on and say hi. Um, I always throw that out there. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so that, I'm cutting that out. No, that's getting cut out. <laughs> what? No, you can't, can't cut that out now. Well, we'll see. <laughs> all right, ever. But seriously, Aiden, Aiden's our, our uh, director over the 340 podcast. She does all this great work. One thing, um, uh, Aiden and our marketing team name is they came up with some fun T-shirts for 340 be unscripted. Um, there's there's a funny saying about pharmacists on the back. I, I think something about I love drug or drug dealers or something like that. I can't remember the exact words. Aiden, if you want to hop on, you can tell us what it exactly says. It says I support legal drug dealers. There you go. There you go. So <laughs> we try to make it fun. Um, it's got the 340 be unscripted um, information on it, plus that fun saying. And we we're bringing extra, I think, 25 shirts or so to the conference. And so if you would like one, we're bringing some for every size. Um, stop by the booth. You do have to know the password. So the password's going to be the Morford letter. Um, and if you if you say it in the form of uh, a question, like you're on Jeopardy, we'll even throw in a bunch of extra chocolate truffles from the Utah truffles that we always bring to the conference. So stop by the booth, say hi, and if you and you listen to the podcast, just tell us a Morford letter, and uh, we'll we'll grab one of those shirts as long as we have them available. Um, so hopefully that's fun, and you can stop by and say hi and. And as always, I'll have my microphone on me. And so if you're also like, hey, I'd like to say something for the podcast, uh, let us know. And we'll s- try and find a little quieter area and record something. And we'll have you on the next episode. The sound bites are really helpful. We all, I, I didn't make the Winter Coalition last year. And I found some of the clips that we got from staff and from clients and, and other folks out in the 340B community that shared just little bits of anecdotes. There's lots of, lots of ground to cover when you're at Coalition. So we'd love to get feedback and, and hear some pearls from the the different sessions that you attend. So stop by, shout out the Morford letter to get a free t-shirt and grab grab Rob's uh, mini microphone and uh, record a sound clip. Yeah, so it's super fun for us and uh, a great opportunity to be on a podcast. Um, we'll get you published. So that, that's always a fun thing to do. Good. All right, one more plug too. July 6th, we have a CE-based webinar. So myself and Melissa Antonopoulos, she's 340B program manager at Memorial Healthcare in South Florida. 
fantastic uh, pharmacy professional. She's got a ton of experience working in the procurement and buying space, um, overseeing 340B operations down at a large uh, disproportionate share hospital and multi-dish uh, health center or uh, health system. So her and I are going to talk a little bit about the pitfalls around uh, 340B purchasing. So compliance risks associated with your buying process, talk a little bit about what HRSA expects for you uh, to provide to them to support your your 340B purchasing records during audits, talk about, you know, things like non-covered outpatient drugs, private label products, buying for clean sites, so lots of good information in the webinar. So make sure you register and, and listen to that uh, session, get a couple of CE credits, by the way. I think that's going to be fantastic. I think Melissa's a great 340B um, leader and also um, this topic's huge, right? I think uh, one Hearst audits, all the ones we were seeing, purchasing, especially direct orders, non-covered outpatient drug lists, if you're subject to the GPO prohibition, all these things are low-hanging fruit for HRSA identify. Consignment, right? How do you handle consignment? We talked yeah. a little bit about it on the last podcast, just coming out of the HRSA audits we attended. And so I think it's great timing for this as, as we see this is one of the big focal points of HRSA audits is, is purchasing because that's where you can kind of go awry and, and uh, have some errors in either diversion or GPO prohibition, uh, neither of which are very good. So um, I think I think it's good. So again, that's uh, July 6th. Um, so coming up really fast. All right, great. I think that's it for news and, and updates in the 340B world. I think this week our focus is going to be on kind of another area of compliance. Last time we talked about Medicaid duplicate discount. I think this time around, we're going to focus on the Medicare cost report, which serves kind of as the starting point for a 340B hospital that's or a hospital that's getting prepared to register for the 340B program. Just about everything you need for uh, getting yourself listed on OPACE and getting yourself started with the program is coming right off of that Medicare cost report. Really important document to be familiar with, right, Rob? Absolutely. Yep. You, you should know all the different parts and uh, and uh, where you find the information you you uh, need to, and and even more so, in addition to the cost report, um, understanding um, the different parts of the trial balance and how do you use a trial balance and and you know even the fact that every trial balance seems to be a little different depending on who makes your uh, cost report or who um, uh, creates your cost report, but uh, we're going to try and walk through that as well and and get you, get you some pointers on that. All right, so back up real quick, Medicare cost reports requirement for CMS, right? So any hospital that's participating in CMS has to file a Medicare cost report annually, is that right? Every year, yep. It's typically about five months after your, your um, cost report period. So, you know, most cost report periods end on some quarter. I'd say the vast majority of our clients are calendar year, so they end in December, at the end of December, December 31st. And so their requirement is to file by the end of May. Um, we also have quite a few uh, covered entities or hospitals or health systems that are, you know, part of a um, university or school system. We find that many of those cost reports end at the end of June, so they have to file uh, their cost reports by the end of November. So again, typically five months. And we we actually have a few um, that end at the end of September, so the end of Q3, which is actually matches the federal fiscal year. And so then they're the ones that have to end up filing by the end of February. Uh, so always a little different. Everyone's a little different. I don't. Greg, I got a question. Have you seen anybody whose cost report period ends at the end of March? No, I can't say that I've seen anybody's <laughs> cost report that would be filed. I'm guessing that would be filed in August or September, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I guess that would have to be the end of August would be their time period. And I've never seen anybody. So maybe there's somebody out there that has that different quarter, but uh, that's definitely one I haven't seen. Most are calendar year. 
the, the next bigger one is that uh, June year, and then a very small amount that has the, the federal fiscal year of mm. end of September. But no, they're out there for sure. Yeah, so it's a you know document filed annually. Um, again, serves as a linchpin for kind of getting started into the 340B program as far as registration is concerned for hospital eligibility. It's a massive document, hundreds of pages of cost reporting information. It's divided across a number of different worksheets. So I think we were just going to kind of start from top to bottom and work our way through the relevant worksheets as it relates to 340B programs. So let's start right at the top, first page, um, worksheet S parts one through three. Uh, that's you know essentially the, the title page, uh, demographic information for the hospital. And that's where you find your, um, your, your CFO or your hospital administrator's signature. So when anytime you're needing to provide HRSA with a copy of your cost report, it always needs to be a signed, executed copy uh, of worksheet S, right, Rob? Absolutely. And that digital signature is important. And sometimes you say signature will go here. And we have seen that if you don't provide the right one, they will return it and say, hey, you need to give us a sign. If it's electronically signed, it's going to have this big encryption key on it. So make sure if you're uploading data to HRSA, it includes that one with the electrician, uh, electrician um, that long um, kind of digital key on it, um, encryption code. And then you know that's the that executed or the signed one that was actually uploaded digitally. Yeah, good. And then next uh, worksheet that's re relevant is uh, worksheet S2, uh, part one. This is where you can find some information regarding your hospital classification. So line 21 is where you'll find your type of control. So whether you're a private nonprofit hospital or a government-owned hospital or a hospital that's been provided uh Governmental powers, um, that's all listed on line 21 and something that you have to key into your OPA database uh, registration for your, your parent 340B ID. Yeah, that's that's a big one on the S to the, the other two that I think are important that people don't realize because people always go, well, I don't know if I have sole community hospital status or yep. rural referral center status. And so that same S2 worksheet, part one, same, you know, just a few rows down from where you find that type of control on 21 you'll also see a section that tells you if you have the sole community hospital designation. Yeah, that's line so that's 35. Gonna, what's that? Yeah, line, line 35 is your yes. SCH status. So it'll indicate whether or not you have sole community status. And then right above that on lines 26 and 27, it'll clarify whether or not you have urban or rural class geographic classification for um, sole community hospital status, which was important Previously, when uh, CMS had OPPS uh, billing requirements for Medicare Part B, and you had to specify a particular JG or TB modifier based on your or, your urban or rural status. So, yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of people were wondering, like, am I rural? Am I urban? I have a social community hospital status, and you're right. Uh, line 26 and 27 tells you that's for the beginning of your period and the end of your period. That's why there's two yep. lines, but. If you had that number two in there, that would tell you you're rural. If you had a number one, you're urban. And and Greg, you're absolutely right. It was kind of a bummer if you were Sokomi Hospital Urban, because that means you did get the reduction in payment when when Medicare was doing that. But uh, yeah. not as relevant now, but that could come back to play. It's always good to know if you're rural or urban. And that's where you're going to find that info. A lot of people kind of wonder that question. Yeah. And then say, same worksheet. So S2, part one, if you go all the way down to line 116, that's where you can confirm uh, rural referral center status as well. So you should have an indication of yes on line 116 if you're a hospital that could qualify as a rural referral center. Yeah, that's that's another good one. Yeah, so S2 is pretty important for all that information for sure.
All right, good. Um, we're going to talk about Worksheets A and Worksheet C in more detail. Let's skip down to Worksheet E. So Worksheet E for Disproportionate Share Hospitals, line 33, that's where you're going to see your allowable disproportionate share percentage. So this is the value that uh, indicates whether or not you can qualify as a DISH hospital. So if you recall, Disproportionate Share Hospitals need a disproportionate share percentage that exceeds 11.75%. And then other hospital covered entity types like sole community and rural referral center only need to have a disproportionate share above 8%. So again, you find that on line 33 of worksheet E part A. Yeah, one, one thing that we should probably mention there, there are certain hospital types, and we won't go into all the details here, but certain hospital types, it, kind of based on size and, and, and scope and, and other status you have, Sometimes you might see on that worksheet E part A line 33, you might just see 12. Yep. And, you know, with the dish percentage needing to be 11.75% or higher to qualify for a dish hospital status instead of a sole community hospital status or rural referral center status of 8%, you might be a little concerned, say, hey, we're at 12%, we're really close. But if you see 12.00, it's more than likely. Now, it is possible that could be your dish percentage. So there's, there's an outside chance it could happen. But typically, if you see exactly 12.00, your type of hospital just caps at 12% for reporting on line 33. So if you're truly interested in knowing what your actual dish percentage is to know if you're close or if you got lots of wiggle room, I mean, it could be 25%. You just don't know. You, you're going to want to check with the um, team that's in charge of creating your cost report to find out what your actual dish percentage would be if it wasn't capped at 12%. So just one call out. If you see 12, and you're like, oh, my gosh, we're always a quarter percent away. That, that may not be true. Um, so okay. I do hear that from time to time. Yeah, another, another hospital type that may not have disproportionate share reported on line 33 is pediatric hospitals. So pediatric hospitals may not be submitting a, a cost report and may not report a disproportionate share percentage on a Medicare cost report, but um, can be uh, validated by a finance department. Typically, you have to provide an attestation if you're not filing a cost report. So um, pediatric hospitals also a little bit different in terms of disproportionate share percentage reporting out to CMS. Right. And we should call it to critical access hospitals. Um, there's also a line that tells you if you're critical access and the critical access hospitals don't actually report a dish percentage, yep. uh, which is one reason why uh, critical access hospitals um, don't have a dish percentage requirement. Um, they're not required to report one. And, um, and just as an FYI, like some of them, like I don't know if this is just it, but for sure it's hospitals, um, urban hospitals with fewer than 100 beds are subject to that 12% rule. So that's, so if, if or, um, and there's might be some other classifications as well, but I know that's one that causes that 12% to max out is just that smaller, um, smaller hospitals that meet that requirement. All right, I skipped over worksheet S10. And I don't think we need anything today from worksheet S10, but it's been in various discussions lately, particularly as we talk about reporting requirements for 340B hospitals, 340B, principles around transparency. Rob, what do you know about Worksheet S10 and how that might intersect with 340B operations and reporting out savings and community benefit in the future? Yeah, S10 is great. Um, a lot of people don't know it exists. It's not one of the current, um, like you said, one of the current required um, uh, worksheets that you submit to HRSA for your 340B program. But the S10 is really where, as a hospital, you report your uncompensated care. And so there is a lot of good information um, from the cost of the care to your actual charges of the care. And it kind of tallies it for you. And this is actually what you federally report as your uncompensated care and unreimbursed care to the federal government, to CMS. And what we've heard, you know, um, some of the agencies that support CMS have talked about using 
uncompensated core of this S10 worksheet as a mechanism to identify um, reimbursement rates or, you know, if, you know, you know, basically how they took away some of the dollars on the dish reimbursement for status indicator K, they're looked at, the last recommendation was to, um, to reapply that not based on dish percent, but based on S10 dollars and, and numbers. And so it's an interesting document, but I also think that's a great place as a covered entity that you can find some of the information that might be required for that transparency requirement. Um, now, of course, the current transparency legislation from um, House um, wants more details than are listed here because they want it broken down by child sites and location. But but this is where you can get some information currently to create your um, 340B savings document and, and what you use for some of those dollars by just highlighting how much uncompensated and unreimbursed care you currently have based on that document. And that is going to include bad debt and charity care write-off and all those things. So some of that's parsed out there for you. So you can easily get that information and get it updated every year when your cost report comes out by looking at your S10. All right. Well, let's talk about worksheets A and worksheets C. I feel like these are the really important worksheets when it gets down to kind of the operational details of your 340B program and eligible location considerations. Uh, kind of in short, tell us what worksheet A and worksheet C are, and then let's get into some of the the, the nuances of, of managing the, the data from those two worksheets. Yeah. I mean, so worksheet A is really your expenses. Those are your costs. So you know, think about, uh, it's a Medicare cost report. And this is the worksheet A in and of itself is just your, your, your cost MCR line. So whenever we say, hey, the department has to be between lines 50 and 118, it's worksheet A and worksheet C. They actually mimic each other from what's on each line. And they're gonna report out on a worksheet A, your expenses. Now, what's interesting is people are, so what kind of expenses? There's two categories of expenses that go on worksheet A. One is salaries, and these are non-provider salaries. Providers go on a get do not go on your cost report. So these are going to be more your nursing staff, your support staff, uh, pharmacy staff. All those will go as salaries. And then other is going to be the rest of your expenses other than salary. So it's an interesting thing because it really tells you your expenses or costs by salaries and other expense for each of your um, Medicare cost report lines. Now, one thing to think about um, when it comes to this, your salaries and expenses, other expenses go on columns one and two, but the actual column that HRSA for both worksheet A and C actually have you look at is column seven. So that's your final number. And if you look at worksheet A, um, for instance, you'll see salaries and other in columns one and two. And then you can see all these other things. Three is a sum and then four is reclassifications. Um, and then you also have reclass reclassified trial balance. And so you have all these reclasses, and that's why you have to look at column seven, because column seven will actually tell you what your actual um, expenses, uh, your net net expenses are. Column six, by the way, is your adjustments. So you have reclassifications and adjustments, and then you finally get to your final number, which is column seven. The reason this is so important is when you're looking at a trial balance, sometimes the numbers, in most cases, the numbers that you're seeing are just the column one and column two numbers. So when you try and add up all of your trial balance detail, and we're going to get into that in a little more in a second, they don't always add up to what's in column seven because you have to take into account reclass and allocate adjustments. And that's where some of the nuances of understanding cost reports come in for that. Now, worksheet C, I already alluded to it, but worksheet C part one, identical MCR lines as worksheet A, but they're going to be your charges. So this isn't what you got reimbursed, but this is what you actually charged to payers, including CMS payers and commercial payers for those services. So again, you get to look at those numbers. The one thing that's interesting about worksheet C, it's kind of similar to worksheet A in that you get your initial um, charges in column one, but then you also have total costs, you have disallowed co uh, costs or charges, and then you finally get over to um, 
the, the column seven, which is your actual charges. So that's uh, column seven's outpatient charges, column six is inpatient charges. For the sake of 340B, we only care about outpatient charges in column seven. So in both cases, you're looking at column seven numbers and trying to understand what they are. But what's important is when you look at an individual line, um, like say you have a line 90, a lot of outpatient clinics go on line 90. In some cases, that line 90 might have multiple cost centers in it. So that's where the trial balance comes in. Sometimes the actual worksheets A and C in the Medicare cost report don't have the level of detail you need when you have multiple cost centers sitting under a single line of the cost report. Um, and that's why that's why a lot of times when you're registering, it does, um, uh, HRSA does mention, you also have to upload the trial balance. Or if you've gone through HRSA audit, you have to look at the trial balance. So trial balance is a big, big detail. So Greg, what did I miss in there? Yeah, so I think I, I, everything's great. I think one one thing we want to also point out is that you know the the line mapping within worksheet A and worksheet C. So starting with worksheet A, I guess you've got your general cost center. So lines one through I think it goes down to twenty nine. I don't know if I've seen anything below twenty three, but these are like general service cost centers. So not clinic locations or patient care locations. This is where your housekeeping, dietary, cafeteria stuff, laundry, linen service, employee benefits, all your um, expenses associated with those general uh, service cost centers are in that first section. And then you have your inpatient uh, routine service cost center. So this would be your like adult and pediatric inpatient locations, your ICUs, surgical step-down units, nursery, inpatient labor and delivery, inpatient psychiatry are typically allocated to rows 30 down to 49. And then starting at lines 50, all the way down to line 118 are your outpatient service cost center. So those are the really important lines when you're looking at off-site outpatient facilities that you want to include into your 340B program, the costs and the revenue from those clinics need to be allocated to a line between lines 50 and 118 if you're following HRSA's 1994 guidance on registering outpatient child site locations. Yeah, I, and, and I'll highlight there, you know, they're, they're all outpatient, but they do call 50 to, I, I guess, 87, if we stop at 87, ancillary service cost centers yep. and outpatient, the 88 through... Um, 90, 90, the 90s, and then you have these other sections. But but I think that the important call out is 50 to 118 is that sweet spot. That's what HRSA's um, numbered as the eligible 340B locations. Now, people always ask about the inpatient locations, especially if you have offsite buildings or offsite child site hospitals. We call them child site hospitals, but there's no such thing as a child site hospital. The child site hospital has quite a few departments that are outpatient or ancillary departments that need to be registered separately. But we always get the question about what about these inpatient cost centers between 30 and up until, you know, not 50, because that's the ancillary, but 49, do they have to register them? And I did want to, just just for the um, for the sake of this um, discussion, um, HRSA did come out with an FAQ that talked about, do you need to register inpatient locations? Because there was a period of time where we were trying, you know, be, because this, this FAQ wasn't out, we, we went through all this effort to register inpatient locations and that's that has since changed where HRSA does have an FAQ that specifically says you do not need to register um, inpatient locations for that op that have observation or so forth and and that was such a big one that came out in September 30th of 2020 and that was a super uh, helpful FAQ because now if you have these offsite child sites you don't have to go through this hoop of trying to figure out how do I register this inpatient cost center um, you just don't have to now if you have an inpatient cost center already registered HRSA says it's fine you just have to kind of explain how you get there. And typically what you do is you show, okay, well, here's my expenses in worksheet A. But then when you go to charges, there aren't any charges in worksheet C, outpatient charges. 
because all of that typically will go to that line 92, which is your observation line. Not all hospitals have this, but most do. And it's a yep. catch-all. So Worksheet C has your observation, your outpatient charges on line 92. And so you have to go through all these hoops to kind of show where your charges and your expenses were for these, out, these inpatient locations. So you don't have to do that anymore. Um, but if you have them registered, you don't have to terminate them. You just have to continue to show data for them. And the one caveat there, some people will terminate them just to keep their cost report clean. But before you terminate an inpatient location, make sure that you don't have a 340B account tied to it. So we've actually seen that on occasion. And then you lose your 340B account, it gets closed down because the wholesaler thinks you closed your account down. So just a little update there. Um, so typically people who already have them registered, just leave them. But if yeah. you're if you're you have a newly uh, new outpatient or a new offsite inpatient location, our recommendation is to not register it because it just adds extra complexity to your organization that's not required. Yeah, I think we've had, I've heard of, I've heard anecdotes of, you know, some covered entities trying to register the secondary hospital campus as a child site of its own. And that was historically, you would see that you just see, you know, the, you know, hospital campus B, which is a two blocks down the road, uh, a single registered 340B ID child site for that whole uh, building. Hearst is likely not going to accept a registration submission because you can't tie that particular uh, building back to one single cost center. Hearst is looking at single distinct cost centers for each of these child sites. So um, even if you were to attempt to register your child site hospital in its entirety, you're, you're likely going to experience some type of interruption or, or OPA is going to come back and they're going to say, hey, look, we need we need more detail or you need to break these out into different cost centers. Absolutely. No. And, and on top of that, if you've had that historical catch-all one location, and then because of the need to be more granular and you've registered each individual cost center as a separate child site, um, we actually have seen findings for inaccurate OPA's databases for having that overarching kind of child site hospital listing or even like a medical office building listing. And then also having each child site listed, they'll actually give you a finding for having that catch all location. So it is something you need to work on terminating. Um, and if and if if you're in the situation, you're like, oh my gosh, I have an offsite location. We just have listed once, and it houses, you know, ten cost centers. You do want to break that out. We actually recommend, I recommend, um, taking the original one you have and making that maybe your one of your child sites, maybe your biggest child site or cost center, um, and then just adding the rest because you don't yeah. want to have the overarching plus every individual and broken out. Uh, I've seen we've seen findings for that. Easy fix, just a pain to get a finding. You know, we, we don't like findings. Our goal is zero findings whenever possible. So yeah, I mean that that finding, that OPA database findings, gonna puts you into a cap. Usually doesn't require uh, a manufacturer repayment for for any reason. But yeah, I try to avoid that if possible. I I like your idea, Rob. I, and that's typically what I recommend is if you've got kind of one of those legacy uh, observation um, hospital child sites registered, let's repurpose that and do a change request, change the sub entity name for that, and then map that in your crosswalk, which we'll get to in a little bit, to one of your outpatient departments and then uh, submit registrations for all the other uh, kind of standalone uh, cost centers that sit within that um, uh, that building that are mapped back to lines 50 to 118. Yeah. And, um, you know, some, some recommendations we got, I can't remember if Hersa gave it to us, but I think somebody did because we were, when this all came out, we're like, okay, well, what do we do for this parent? Um, the recommendation when you, when you decide if, so if you're in this boat, and you haven't already registered all your other child sites. Um, we like, I like the emergency room as being that catch-all because that's the one department you're likely not going to move or, I mean, not move, or, or that you're not going to get rid of. Yep. And so, because remember, you do need to attach your 340B account to something. And that's why we like repurposing that original registration because more than likely that's what your hospital inpatient pharmacy 340B accounts are attached to is that child site. Yep. 
So you don't really want to terminate it. So repurposing it, I think, is critical. And you'll get some questions from her saw on this as you change that name and, and you have to explain, here's what we're doing. It was a catch-all. We're going to the granular level, which is your requirement that we go to the cost center level. And that's what we're doing. And and maybe we jumped the gun on that conversation, Greg, or maybe I did. Because um, one of the key important things about registering locations that are offsite is cost center or accounting unit. So, yeah. so again, each each Medicare cost report line may just be a single cost center, which means that that number in column seven should match your trial balance for that department, take into account adjustments um, for reclassifications or, or adjustments. But having said that, many times you have multiple cost centers sitting under a single line of the cost report. And what HRSA has kind of stated through one of the FAQs, Greg, I, I think you had that FAQ ready, right? For that. Yeah, it's a, a 1190. So this was most recently updated on May 12th of 2023. So I think this is one of the FAQs that got touched by Apexis uh, during the expiration of the PHE. But I believe this has been in place for some time now. Right. And and basically what it boils down to is if you have cost centers that are not located within the parent or that four walls by definition, and we could probably have a little discussion about what the four <laughs> walls are since almost no one only has four walls anymore. But um but if it's not with what you consider your four walls, so it's offsite, then every single cost center needs to be registered as a separate child site. And, and that's super important. So if you get anything out of this um, podcast episode today, it's if you have an offsite location, here's a good example. I see this all the time. You might have an offsite cancer center. That cancer center has a medical oncology clinic and it has a um, infusion service and it has a radiation oncology service, all three separate cost centers. But historically, you might have said, oh, but that's just our cancer center. So your child site is cancer center. That's kind of like the child site hospital. You have an overarching registration for really three cost centers. Um, what we're seeing on HRSA audits, that that can be a finding for not having registered each cost center at its own child site. So again, what you're going to want to do is probably take your med on clinic or infusion center and wherever the 340B accounts attached to make that, that current listing and register those other two cost centers as separate child sites. My guess is in this case, you'd probably do the infusion center as that original catch-all cancer center and then add the medical oncology clinic and the radiation oncology um, service as separate child sites. Um, so that cost center level is pretty difficult. Another good example um, is uh, med specialty clinics. Quite mm -hmm. often a med specialty clinic you know, might have three or four different clinical practices serving out of it, but we registered as the medical specialty clinic because it's the one location, one intake. They all map to line 90, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. and they're separate cost centers, right? They're like four or five different cost centers. You're like, oh no. And it's a pain because you're like, wait, I have to, you have, we make this recommendation. You have to register each of those service lines as a separate child. So like, it's all the same clinic. We're like, we get it. We understand that. But, but HRSA's ask is that every single cost center is its own child site. So any other, any other kind of group locations, Greg, that you see on your audits? Yeah. I, you know, so one, I think challenging, two challenging areas. And again, these would be in hot, like offsite hospital campuses. First is diagnostic imaging, and the second is the OR. So let's talk about the first one. Diagnostic imaging, you may have, you know, just a, a, a single diagnostic imaging department at your offsite campus, but it includes cost centers for CT, for MRI, for X-ray. What are your thoughts on needing to register each of those service lines, even if they're sitting within that same diagnostic imaging department? I, I think the safe play is to look at each of those cost centers and determine if you're administering drugs there, 340B covered outpatient drugs there. All right. A lot of times we contrast is kind of put into non-covered outpatient drug lists. So if you're really looking at drugs that you buy or split on 340B or buy, you know, prospectively on 340B, then you're going to want to register every single one of those cost centers as its own child site. But 
the reality is do take a look, right? If you think about um, uh, a couple of service lines, they probably don't use drugs at all. Like mammography really rarely uses drugs. Um, definitely for ultrasound. Um, Ultrasound, yep. right? You use jelly, right? I rarely in ultrasound are you you using something other than jelly, which is not a three forty B drug. So, so you may not have to register all of them, but I do agree if because they're often different cost centers. In fact, they're different lines on the cost report when you look at yeah. MRI versus CT uh, versus uh, you know uh, diagnostic radiology. They're all going to be separate lines. So that is another area we've seen on Hearst audits uh, auditors call out that hey, you have different cost centers using drugs, and you did one catch all radiology location. So I definitely agree with that. Yeah, majority of hospitals that I've worked with typically carve out or exclude uh, contrast. So contrast in a lot of cases doesn't have a PPA, doesn't have 340B pricing. So they designate contrast as NCOD or non-covered outpatient drug. They buy it exclusively on a separate GPO account. Um, and they make the assumption that, well, you know, those are all radiology departments. All of our contrast is GPO only. We're not going to be using any 340B drugs there. But then you find charges coming from those departments for pre-medications, things like Tylenol, things like uh, diphenhydramine, corticosteroids, um, sedatives, propofol, uh, diazepam, things for, you know, some type of uh, sedation or conscious sedation that's going to occur during MRI. So you got to look at the drug distribution in those departments and determine whether or not there are, in fact, drugs splitting to your 340B account. And if those departments are sitting in separate cost centers and are rolling up on in, on unique lines on the cost report, the, the safe play, I think, as Rob said, is to register those as separate child sites. Again, if they are considered off-site of the parent location. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, if you, your MRI thing, not just conscious sedation, I just need sedation, right? If you're putting me in that tiny little claustrophobic little box, yeah. I'm going to need something. Uh, so we do see benzos quite a bit in uh, MRI when you're going to those really small machines and and it's you're going to be in there for a bit. Yeah. I mean, that's that's not a popular recommendation. I get some pushback because they say, look, that's you're talking five or six more child site registrations. So that really, you know, expands the footprint of us sitting on the OPA database. But again, I think you're at risk for a potential um, OPA database finding uh, if you don't have those departments registered. Yeah. And and we, we've alluded to the whole hospital, right, child sites uh, again. And it's, it's true. If you have child site hospitals and we have quite a few clients that have a secondary campus, so it's a secondary hospital or a second hospital. We've even got, um, we've had, we've got a couple of clients with multiple child site hospitals, and it's just, a, it's a business decision on how you run them, right? There's some definitely efficiencies when you have a single, you know, hub hospital and you've got these smaller hospitals, and, and they're part of your, um, your whole, it's just one cost report. So they're we call child site hospitals. Whenever you have that, just realize you have to go through every single department in those child site hospitals. That have a separate cost center and you're gonna have to register them separately so some of these child site hospitals might have 10 15 different cost centers from the er to all the imaging to same day surgery or surgery um yeah. to to respiratory therapy i mean there's so many things that use drugs these departments that you don't really think about because they're typically within your four walls but not in a child site hospital you actually have to register every single one of those cost centers separately but again you can you can leave the inpatient cost centers off those are okay so what about OR in these offsite uh, campuses? So say you've got an offsite OR that has pre-op, it has the main OR, it has the post-op or the PACU. So three distinct locations. Again, if there are separate cost centers associated with those three different departments, register them separately. Yeah, I mean, so there's a little bit of a test we go through, right? And um, it's it, it's going to be hard to do it justice on this call. But one thing we like to do is we like to take those trial balance worksheets, right? So trial balance worksheet A, trial balance worksheet C, they're really spreadsheets with all this detail that we're talking about. So instead of just looking at the single line on the Medicare cost report for worksheets A and C, 
you're looking at all of the charges and expenses that go into that line. And typically that's where you'll see, oh, I have these different cost centers. And then we like to do, I like to do a pivot table of those cost centers so I can get a sum of expenses and a sum of charges for each MCR line. And then I like to do a V lookup so I can get them all side by side, right? I really wanna look at each individual cost center and if it has expenses and if it has charges. One thing we should highlight often when you're looking at charges in a Medicare cost report, charges are negative. Don't let that throw you off. I was like, why are all these charges negative? negative They're negative because it's the cost reports, which so so charges show up as a negative number. If you have a positive charge on worksheet C, that's actually a negative charge, if that makes any sense. That may make zero sense verbally, but um, in a future we'll, we'll, we'll do, in fact, Greg, we were talking about, I don't know if we should put it out there because then we really have to do it, but possibly doing a webinar to go over this. So I know we got the July 6th webinar we talked about, but maybe the next one after that, we could do a, a show everyone how to deal with a cost report and how to do these um, pivot tables and V lookups and how to get everything together. So you can really look at by cost center, do I have expenses and charges? Because that's critical, right? If you're looking at this surgical location, like you asked to have, okay, so I've got the surgical center, I've got pre-op, I got post-op, I got anesthesia. It's trying to figure out, do I have to register them separately? You're going to want to see, do I have expenses and charges? Because sometimes you might have expenses, but all the charges are dropping under the OR line. So if yep. that's the case, then you just register the OR line. So you have to know, do I have expenses and charges? But if you do have expenses and charges, that means drug charges are or dr charges are dropping on those other lines. Then you're probably going to want to register them separately just to make sure you're, in case drug charges drop on them, then you'll be able to pick them up as qualified locations. Otherwise, it could be a problem during a hearse audit if that location shows up with drug charges and you haven't had it registered yet. So yeah. that was a lot that I threw in there, Greg. I don't know if you want to get caught up on my recommendation for the webinar. No, I, it's, a great, but it, it's a great recommendation, but it does sound like a webinar and it sounds like a streaming session. We got to get you hooked up on like a, uh, a, a dual screen display and and maybe we include a little working trial balance uh, crosswalking as part of the next webinar. So Right. Or, or Aiden's going to tell us that she's going to want to do another a video of us while we do the podcast. Which uh, which uh, threw us off greatly looking at ourselves, but. <laughs> All right, I got another tricky question for you. I want your thoughts? What about off an offsite, two offsite locations? So you've got a clinic that operates two offsite offsite offices or departments, but share a single cost center on the trial balance. How do you handle that? Oh, these are brutal. Um, and and I I just worked with a client, of course, not to mention names. Um, great client by the way, but but still won't mention their name. Um, big hospital, big hospital. Um, I'll just, I don't have mentioned their state. Maybe that's too much information, but, um, they have quite a few of these. And yeah. so we had this discussion, um, quite a, uh, quite a few HRSA audits recently, lately in the last few years anyway. Um, this has been a focus. So HRSA kind of realizes at some point in time, they realized a lot of people will take a single cost center and they'll add new locations to it because it's already on the file cost report. So this is going back now that I don't want to get into the whole mess of, um, the, you know, whether FAQ 4301 is still in effect, but prior to FAQ 4301, prior to 2020, you know, you have to wait this long time period. And I know we're in a gray area, whether we have to wait or not for these new locations. So what, you know, some covered days would be, you know, I think it was a good strategy to say, Hey, that cost report's already in existence. What if I just add this department, this new location to that same cost report? So multiple locations under a single cost center. And then it's immediately registerable because that cost center already exists. Now, sort of, because you don't actually have expenses and charges in that cost center yet for that new location, but you do have the whole location registered. I mean, the whole location available on a Medicare cost report. So it's kind of a way to be able to try and get that thing registered sooner. And so I, I think HRSA picked up on this and they said, well, 
if you've got more than one location sitting under a cost report, even if one's in the four walls and one's external, we actually want to see the expenses and charges for each of those locations. And so I think that's the answer to your question. Yeah. If you're going to have more than one location sitting under a single cost report, just realize HRSA will more than likely ask you to parse out those expenses and charges by location. And why this is actually a pain is because the Medicare cost report only requires a hospital or health system to go down to the cost center level. So if HRSA is asking you to go beyond the cost center level to actual each location's expenses and charges, that's going to require some extra tracking because it's not already required as part of your current Medicare cost report work, workload. And often we have to go to that manager because typically if it's a single cost center, you've got one manager over that and, and just ask them, hey, can you track expenses and charges separately for all these locations? And that's a pretty big ask, right? Because that's something they may or may not be doing today. Yeah. Um, but uh, when you have to scramble on a hearse audit to get expenses and charges for each of those locations, it was a lot of work. We had um, one good example is one of our good clients um, that we were on hearse audit and this ask was made. It was for two of their infusion centers. Now, legitimately, they're, they're, one was just a, like a, you know, is a lot of patients were in the city next door. So they just opened up a new location. So one was within the four walls. One was a secondary site. And they're like, and the manager was like, I just treat everybody the same. In fact, people show up and I just say, okay, you're at this other location today. All the charges drop somewhere. So because of the location, we were able to get charges. We were able to kind of through some, um, some time cards, we were able to figure out who was where, but it was a lot of work to do it during a hearse audit. So yeah. if you do have the situation for a single cost center, more than one location, please go ahead and talk to that manager, see if that's something you can start tracking today. It'll save you a lot of work down the road or consider pulling those apart and having them be separate cost centers in the future. Yeah, surrogate that we've used in the past that satisfied HRSA audit criteria for this is uh, using uh, kind of a proportion or a ratio of visits. So if you don't have the the charges and expenses for those separate physical departments, uh, looking at the volume of visits at each of those locations and calculate a ratio of your expense and revenue based on the proportion of visit, visits at each location give, gives you a kind of a surrogate for that um, kind of department level uh, accounting detail that HRSA would, would require for you to register them as child sites. Yeah, we actually did that for expenses for those two infusion centers because the manager was like, I just buy all my supplies and everything under one account. Yeah. And and whoever we're sending over to their location, they just take them with them, but they don't treat them separately. And we're like, oh my gosh. And the hearse order is there. We're talking, the hearse order is talking with us about it. And she's like, and so we did the same thing. So, okay, where we can get separate expenses and charges, which which charges were easier because you build by location, but expenses for the rest of the expenses, we did a ratio um, based, we actually used the the charge data. So we looked at the total charge data for the, the main site and the secondary site. And then you're right, we did a ratio and applied it to the expenses that weren't separately tracked. But uh, but important because because if you don't know about that, then and during a hearse audit, that becomes a very big lift yeah. to try and break, get, get that breakout. That's a stressful calculation to make <laughs> while you're also working through 60 or so samples. So you want to prepare for that in, in advance. And I think that kind of is a good segue into, you know, a discussion around what what tool do we recommend covered entities maintain to keep track of all this information, stuff on your cost reports, stuff on your trial balance, all of your registered locations? What's the what's the gold standard for tracking this information? Yeah, it's it's the working trial balance crosswalk that we um, definitely talk about. It's, you know, some of this is actually required as part of a hearse audit, right? They want a crosswalk of all your child sites. Uh, we go one step further and then they want a, a, a listing of all your eligible locations, even within the four walls. And so we say, you know what? taking your trial balance, dropping that into uh, location crosswalk and just crosswalking everything and really understanding where everything is. What are, are they mixed use? Are they clean sites? Um, do they, do they um, write prescriptions? Do they administer 340 to be covered outpatient drugs? 
what their addresses are, right? And, and then how that maps to child site registration as well as cost centers, showing the expense and revenue. We've got this nice worksheet that we recommend to all of our clients. And so if it's something you don't have, reach out to us. Um, Greg, if you, you'll hit them up on the, the 340B unscripted email, because I always forget. Yeah, 340B unscripted at spendmen.com. Okay, I should be able to remember that. I'm not sure what my problem is. I remember um, what it is, but I don't remember to check the inbox. I leave it up to you to, <laughs> to read the email. So I can remember, I can recite the email, but I don't remember. Nice. That. I do, I do scroll through and we get comments. We, we get questions sometimes. So it's kind of fun. So if you don't have a trial balance crosswalk and you're not a current client, more than happy to share that with you. Just, just reach out via that. Of course, if you're a current client, reach out. All of our auditors um, have a copy of it and something we've more than likely recommended already, but definitely something to put together. Super helpful during a Hearst audit to have that already done for our clients that are new clients that ask us to help support for a Hearst audit and we haven't gone through an audit before, we're typically scrambling and building that that trial balance crosswalk for them because it helps us understand, is everything registered that should be? Is there anything not? Are there going to be any questions about locations not registered? And then do, do all these locations qualify? So really helpful document to do ahead of time. And yeah, then I mean, also updated that, after you file a new cost report. Sorry. No, no, I was going to say, you know, once the cost report's uh, filed, you want to start working on that because really that serves as your working document to get recertified. So annual recertification for hospitals is in uh, September, um, maybe starting in August, typically. Uh, it's been delayed in the past, but um, by the end of the summer, you've got to re recertify all of your child site locations. You want to be working off of a trial balance crosswalk to validate that all of your registered child sites have revenue and expenses so that when you attest to them, um, they're eligible. Yeah. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention to looking at worksheet A, um, people always wonder where, where are retail pharmacies sitting? So your inpatient pharmacy is line 15. Greg talked about those um, initial cost centers that don't really qualify. And so actually we should highlight that really quick. So your, your in-house, your inpatient pharmacy is typically line 15. And of course, that's why it's not a qualified location. Another department that sits in those general service cost centers that don't qualify for 340B is under employee benefits. A lot of times your employee health sits under column four um, or column five administrative in general, and that's where employee health is. So a lot of people ask, well, is employee health qualified? It's part of my hospital. It sees our employees and, you know, does sometimes H or, or uh, needle sticks or, you know, other things, vaccines. And we're like, yeah, technically it doesn't. Unless you know, some hospitals will have a employee health sitting under line 90 or some actual qualified line. So that would be okay. But yeah. if your employee health sits under line four or five, then it doesn't qualify for 340B. Those patients... And so a lot of times we'll recommend or they have a process if it is a needle stick to actually go through the emergency department um, for your needle stick because then the emergency emergency department does qualify those patients. But typically employee health by, in, by itself doesn't qualify. So just a call out there, line 15 is your inpatient pharmacy. But what I was going to share was a lot of people wonder, well, if I have an in-house retail, how do I tell HRSA it truly is an in-house retail pharmacy? If you have an in-house retail pharmacy, it's typically in your non-reimbursable cost center. So it's the 190s. It's where yeah. you see all your non-qualified locations as well. Um, and the reason the retail pharmacies aren't a reimbursable location is because retail pharmacies don't get reimbursed through a cost report. They get reimbursed through direct adjudication through NCPDP formats. So anyone in pharmacy kind of realize that retail, very different from billing in the hospital. But if that's where, if you want to know, is it truly an in-house retail, which is super important right now for not getting hit by all the manufacturer restrictions. And HRSA is asking you to confirm that your in-house retail is in fact a uh, uh, part of the covered entity, but that's how one of the one part of that test is: Do you see it on the in the one nineties? I often see it in the one ninety two range, somewhere around there. Um, you yeah. should see your retail pharmacy listed there. If it isn't in house retail pharmacy, you should see some expenses there. 
Yeah, since we're yeah, it's a great 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 point to bring up because that's a new data request list item since the fall of last year. So section seven of HRSA's data request list is documentation to support non-contract pharmacies that are listed as shipping addresses on your OPA database. I suspect that trying to you know identify or, or mitigate a workaround where covered entities might might move contract pharmacies off of the contract pharmacy tab and list them as shipping addresses so now hearse is requiring you to provide a little bit of additional documentation to validate uh, ownership of your in-house retail pharmacies and one thing that we'll point to is whether or not expenses might uh, roll up on the cost report in the 190 section on worksheet A of the hospital cost report. There's a few other documents you can provide, copy of the hospital pharmacy license or the retail pharmacy license, liability of insurance certificate, but um, you know, it's a slam dunk qualification of an in-house retail pharmacy if your expenses are hitting worksheet A. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it, typically you need a little bit more than just that, but that's one part of it. That's that, right? If you've got that, then the license and some other things will get you there for sure. And you know, and in-house retail is becoming a lot popular again all of a sudden. What about other non-reimbursable cost centers, Rob? Would we want to talk about 190 clinics? Yeah, um, you know, so in that same section where the retail farms here in the 190 pluses, that's where you'll see like gift shops and those non-qualified clinics and, um, you know, non-qualified from at least from um, the 1994 guidance on child site registration. Um, so these gonna, are going to be clinics that don't bill uh, facility fees. They're not hospital outpatient departments or, or provider-based departments, but they are clinics of the hospital. They're just what we call non-reimbursable because they're only billing um, POS 11, which is a standalone physician clinic billing. Um, you know, there, there's been some covered entities looking at that and say, hey, is the 94 guidance around child set registration enforceable? Can we look at 190s and say, you know, 190 clinics and say these are these are in fact, you know, integral clinics of our hospital. We mm -hmm. may not bill them for facility fees, but they could be integral. So, I know there's been some questions around that. There's definitely something if you're gonna, if you're thinking about that, you want to probably get some um, kind of present that to HRSA and get some at least some response from HRSA on that before you do something like that. But um, but it's something that you know people are looking at if if these clinics are integral and on the cost report, just just not billing in a reimbursable section. What do we do with those clinics? Yeah, Not you know, sure I think after after summer coalition last year, you know, there were some anecdotes that were shared during sessions around HRSA audits looking at claims. So samples were selected uh, where the prescriptions were written out of 190 clinics, and those samples passed. And you know, I think that's more aligned with you know maybe a continuum of care argument when those patients had qualifying visits in a. Uh, reimbursable location prior to being seen in the 190 clinic. But again, it's an area of, of uncertainty right now and, and certainly an area of interest for, for a lot of covered entities that have um, lots of clinics within the four walls of their hospital or on hospital campuses operating out of 190 on the cost report. Yeah, but but it's nice to look in there because at least if you find locations, that you know that's where they are. Because some people are like, well, what about this location? I thought it was hospital-based or provided a hospital. And you can kind of go look at those things and double check, you know, is, is that a qualified line or not? All right. I think I've run, uh, run out of questions. Did I miss anything, <laughs> Rob? What, what else? Any other Easter eggs buried in the, uh, in the cost report that we should be aware of? No, I, I think that's the biggest thing is just, just realizing that trial balance detail and being able to manipulate those documents so you can get everything together, your expenses and charges on one line, super critical. So, you know, as we talked about, I, I like the idea of maybe possibly doing a webinar or, or something, you know, uh, where we do screen capture our our desktops on on a podcast and I guess our talking heads I guess people call them that um, might be interesting but yeah so we have to figure that out but I think that would be super useful for people to see how you do those um, both pivot tables and v lookups on a trial balance just to yeah. get to somewhere that's more usable 
um, to identify kind of what we're talking about. Excellent. All right. Well, I think that's it for this week. I think, Rob, next time you and I will talk, we'll be in Washington for coalition. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's coming up quick. So just a reminder for everyone, booth 809, definitely come and say hi. Um, again, podcast listeners, remember your 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 passcode for a free 340B unscripted t-shirt is the Morford letter. And then I'll see everybody early on Wednesday, 6.45 a.m., I think. I don't know what room it is, but we got Lessons from the Field, Part 3, a couple of good presentations lined up. I think I'm talking about uh, challenging eligibility location issues. We'll talk about the cost report, talk about how you register child sites, and talk about some of those other kind of areas of gray around location eligibility. So that's going to be fantastic. We know that's that's kind of early Wednesday morning. And we also know that the uh, charity fun walk will be competing against that. But definitely, if you're not walking, I definitely recommend getting up and, and uh, coming and seeing Greg's podcast. I think we're dividing and conquering. So um, yeah. we do um, spend men pharmacy uh, supports the charity walk. It's something we've always done every 340 conference we've been a part of. So I might be representing our contingent who gets up super early to go on the walk. Love to see you there. But Preferably, I think going to Greg's thing might be nicer. Um, Greg's presentation and learning more about more about the cost report and registration. Rob, Rob you can just walk really quickly, and then you can walk into the <laughs> seminar sweaty with your t-shirt on. So, I, I yeah, it's going to be sweaty with the humidity there in DC as it always is. So yeah, might have to wear my three for to be inscripted podcast to the walk. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I'll wear it during the lessons from the field presentation. I don't know what the dress code is. So. We we could just throw them on one day when we're in the booth section. We'll just throw them on. I think that's a good idea. All right. All right. Well, Rob, it's good catching up with you. We'll see you in Washington in uh, about a week or so. Everyone, thanks again for listening. If you have any questions about anything we talked about, definitely hit us up on email. It's 340bunscripted at spendmen.com. We'll catch you next time. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.